Welcome to the latest episode of Global Class, a podcast where we explore the international expansion stories of the world's fastest growing companies and the career journeys of their globally minded leaders. My name is Klaus Vihe, and I'm here with my co-host, Aaron McDaniel. Thanks, Klaus. In this episode, we're excited to welcome Sebastian Mero, the president of Box Europe, Middle East and Africa. Box is a cloud content management company that empowers more than 87,000 businesses globally by revolutionizing how they work. In Sebastian's 30-year career, he has held executive roles at high-profile companies like Google, Hyperion, and Oracle. He led Google Cloud's EMEA channels as vice president, having also served as vice president of Google Cloud EMEA for almost a decade. As an early leader at Google Cloud, Sebastian was responsible for much of the foundational growth and development across the EMEA region, including the launch of G Suite, now Google Workspace. In our conversation, Sebastian talks about the importance of diversity in building international teams, strategies in balancing corporate strategy and localization, why customer engagement is everything in business, how digitalization changed the way we innovate, work, and hire, and why there's more opportunities for global businesses now more than ever. Sebastian, it's great to be speaking with you. We are on different continents right now. You're in Paris and we're in California, but excited to have you here today and to talk a bit about your entrepreneurial journey over the last 30 years. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Aaron. I'm equally excited actually to share my experience. Why don't we start from the beginning? So one thing, you have some amazing experience at companies like Oracle and Google, and of course at Box, and also just in leadership roles, being on the board of directors of, of companies. But one thing that we found about the really successful business leaders we talked to who were able to operate at global scale is that they had really interesting formative experiences that showed them there was a world beyond their backyard, sometimes at a young age, sometimes during college or after. What were some of those formative experiences for you? So first of all, actually, my journey is a long journey. It's a 30 years journey. I am very much, I'm a French native, as you may have guessed (laughs) and you knew before. I come from a very kind of traditional French family. I grew up actually in France, in Paris. And when I started my career, so first I studied in France also, a business school. And when I started my career, I started in a French company. And everything was kind of paved to grow my career in a kind of a French environment. And very quickly, so I started this career in a French company. It was a software company. And part of the products actually were a product from an American company, which was at the time called Microcontrol. It was Hyperion, a financial software company. And as a sales rep, actually, I was also selling this product. And very quickly, I got totally attracted by this product. I got attracted by the company, actually, that I was uh, reselling the product from. And I've decided only three years after I started my career to um, go with a friend of mine, another rep, uh, and visit the CEO of the company and offer actually to start the French subsidiary of this American company. And the day I met actually the CEO, I mean, it was kind of a flash. I realized that you can really push the border. You can really uh, access to something really new by joining an American company. So that was really a kind of a flash, which has really kick-started my career, the ability to uh, start a French subsidiary of an American company. And then all my career was focused on expanding, actually, this international footprint. So from starting this French subsidiary of the company called Hyperion, I've taken additional European territories or countries. And one day, it was kind of fun because I was very fortunate, actually, to qualify many years in a row to the the U.S. sales trip. 
And this time of the year, it was a few years after I started Hyperion, that the sales trip was in Sydney, Australia. And I had never, ever been there. I've never, ever been so far away. And I remember traveling to Australia with my wife and my two kids at the time. We stopped over in Singapore. And I will always remember the day I was in this hotel, actually, stopping over. I went down to the breakfast room in the hotel, and I've seen a very large diversity of business people in this breakfast room. And I had really a flash. I was thinking myself, this is what I want to do next. I really want to go abroad. I want to go in a place I don't know, and I want to run some business. And that was a second flash in my career. And then I came to Singapore, and I will most likely come back in the conversation about this experience. I was really blown away by the diversity, by the cultural shock. I loved every single day I spent in Asia, spending six years there. And then my kids grew up, and we decided to go back to Europe. But the last place we wanted to go back to was in France. So then I joined Google in London, and I spent the last 10 years at Google, and I've expanded actually even further my international experience, having not only the chance actually to run Europe at Google, but also to have a global role based in Mountain View to run a global business, one of the global business of Google. So it was a journey. It's a long journey. I've learned a lot along the journey. And every single step, I think every three years I was doing, I was expanding my role. I was doing something new that has transcended actually my, really my motivation to uh, keep on growing my international career. Just to key on one thing you mentioned, we noticed that this was, besides the formative experiences you spoke about, that this was a, an interesting commonality amongst a lot of the entrepreneurs that we talked about. And for those listening, if you've listened to our podcast, you've heard us talk about this before, but to those who are new, an entrepreneur is sort of this future business leader that is able to combine the agile mindset, being entrepreneurial, with a company mindset to work within the complexity and bureaucracy of an established organization. But in particular, at the top of this pyramid we use as our framework is a cultural mindset, a global mindedness, cultural curiosity, cultural sensitivity, the ability to have empathy to localize a business for other markets. And so you definitely have that. And with what we've heard from other entrepreneurs is this desire, this passion to bring solutions and to bring in particular in technology, bring technology to help a local market. And when you were explaining in your experience, your desire to bring some of what these other companies from other markets had into initially France. It was just an interesting commonality that we've seen across a number of successful people we spoke with. Exactly. I mean, international is very complex, actually. You've got such a diversity of culture. I think one of the biggest moments in my career, I remember when I was uh, the first day I joined this company, Hyperion, in Singapore. And I was appointed as the leader for APAC. And it was really APAC. It was everything from Japan to Australia, across, including India, and of course, China and Southeast Asia, all these countries. And I really remember the first day I came to the office, I ran my first leadership meeting. I didn't know most of the leaders. I ended up actually running a meeting with 14 different nationalities. I had a leader from Japan, from India, from Indonesia, from Australia, from China, and what a shock, actually. And you're coming with your, I wouldn't say preconceived ideas, but your usual best practice. And you have to pretty much reboot everything. And I think the very first thing you need to do is to step back, listen, and learn, actually. It's really very, very important, actually. And then you need to figure out, because you're in a global company, you're in an American company, you're in a global company, you have to figure out, actually, how you are 
coping with this diversity, which is by any means a strength, actually, and at the same time implement, well, a business which is aligned with the corporate strategy. And again, I mean, there is so much to say about that. At the end of the day, you're in a global business, you're in a global company, and the very first thing you need to uh, do is first and foremost, understand the corporate strategy and try to implement as a top priority this corporate strategy, and then really try to figure out what prevents you from implementing this corporate strategy. And it is so complex, and you have so many opportunities, and your best enemy is the size of the market, because the market is absolutely huge. And the best way, actually, to cope with that is really two things. On a business point of view, you need to build, you need to understand the sweet spot which battle you're going to cherry pick, actually, to succeed because it's huge, actually. So you can't go everywhere. And on the second hand, people is everything. And you have to have the right leaders to run each and every single part of your geographies and making sure that you build a culture that you can really regroup, realign, and refocus it. There's a lot of information here and a lot of great insights, Sebastian. And there's one area that you keyed in on was so the balancing of the corporate strategy, but then also understanding how to localize that business to successfully scale into that market. And so again, in, in Aaron and my book, Global Class, we talk a lot about that, that struggle, right? How do you balance that, right? Localization with complexity. And we built a specific tool called the Localization Premium Analysis Tool to help doing that. I would love to maybe understand a little bit from you in terms of what was your sort of approach to that? How did you, you know, along with ensuring that you're implementing that corporate strategy, also at the same time, ensure that you actually were able to localize the business to effectively meet local customer needs, demands, and then scale into those markets that you were responsible for in Asia. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So a few things. Number one, it's very important, as I said, actually, to understand the corporate strategy and to stay as close as possible to the corporate strategy. The other thing is first prioritize everything which is close to this corporate strategy. In other words, if you've got some part of your territory where you need to customize things to a point that you need to invest, then you need to come with a business plan. Actually, there is no way a corporate is going to do anything specific if we don't have a return on investment. So every single specificities needs to be, again, needs to be planned with a clear return investment. The other thing which is very important, actually, is while all of these countries and business practices and culture are different, it's absolutely critical to build a common language. What does it mean, a common language? It's really come with common practices, it's common business processes, it's common metrics also. At the end of the day, the goals are pretty much the same, actually. You have to hit some KPIs or OKRs, actually. But eventually, the methodology may be different. I mean, I've seen that, for instance, something I didn't mention in my previous answer. I spent also quite a lot of time at Oracle and in APAC, and in addition to also to Hyperion. And while actually, again, the goals were similar between China and Australia, the way we were running business were very different, actually. And the way I was engaging myself as an executive when I was meeting some customers in China was very different from the way I was engaged also in Australia. So. The sales cycle were different, but eventually we were talking the same language. We are always using the same metric. When it was about, I mean, if you are in sales, you talk about pipeline creation, you talk about sales productivity with the same metrics. 
again, we got a set of metrics that we, as a management team, I remember you've got one single dashboard and you bring always this dashboard that you're creating with your team to align the team. So I think that was really, it's always backed actually to these tools and processes, which eventually are the same. I love maybe your key down on metrics as well. And I would love to understand when you actually start to look at more like revenue and profitability metrics when you expand to new market. For example, Uber, the way that they thought about it in the beginning was, you know, one, you have to hire the team, but two, also you need to heal a ride within five minutes. That's some of the early metrics, right? It's not necessarily profitability and so forth, more like on product market fit, et cetera. What is your view on this? Do, should you already have these you know, revenue target goals in the beginning when you expand to a new country? Or should you spend a little bit more time on discovery, learning, and then really figuring out, okay, what is the right model when you expand to that country? So when you come to a country, you have to have a go-to-market, you have to have a sales strategy. If we talk about sales, number one, as you mentioned, the leadership is absolutely critical. You're not going to get into Indonesia if you don't have a top manager actually to kickstart to help you starting a business in Indonesia, meaning somebody who is already connected and who has the capability actually not only to start a business, but also to grow the business. That's one. The second thing is really about business modeling. And depending on the country, you've got also what I'm in the tech industry and the tech industry, it's pretty much always the same dimensions. Actually, you have to figure out which segments you want to go to, you want which accounts, which industries, are you going to go vertical or horizontal? And then which product you're going to sell? Because sometimes, I mean, uh, the chance, for instance, I don't know, we have hundreds of products in a company like Oracle, for instance. So you have to really create, your, as I said, your sweet spot and you have really have to create where you want to go. Now, there is international and in APAC in particular, there is a component which is absolutely critical. And the big difference from very mature markets, it's the, the partner ecosystem. And if you want to scale, most of the time, global companies do not give you necessarily a ton of resources to start with. And in those territories like APAC, like Latin America, for instance, like emerging markets in the Middle East or in Central and Eastern Europe, the only way, not the only way, but the best way that I've seen at least and myself to kickstart a business is to leverage, to build and grow a partner ecosystem. They're already connected to the customers, to the ecosystem. And by building the right program, enablement program, actually, you can accelerate your go-to-market. The combination of hiring, which is the most important thing, the right leaders, either building the right go-to-market, cherry-picking the right battles, and building a partner ecosystem is what I've seen actually being the most successful in uh, when entering a new market. Klaus and I are getting excited because there are just so many facets that you're just even incorporating into one answer to a question. So we can just tell, you know, the experience and insights just sort of dripping from your lips. So there are a few things I wanted to talk about, but you mentioned a couple of times the sweet spot part of things. And part of that, as you were outlining, has to do with segmentation. The other side of that has to do with what you know we'll, we'll label as prioritizing what localizations to do. How do you think about deciding what to prioritize in what order? As you said, you don't have often unlimited resources. And so how do you go through that process to decide, here's what we're going to localize first because this is more important or has the biggest impact or culturally, you know, what? how do you look at that? First of the thing, actually, to go back maybe to the first question and then go back to your question. One of the things I've learned at the time, and it was like 25 years ago, which has really attracted me to uh, going into more of an international environment, 
One of the leaders who has inspired me the most at the beginning of my career was a VP sales executive who used to work at Hyperion. He was the global CRO at the time. And he really taught me how to sell solutions rather than to sell features. And that was really an eye-opening for my career. Since that day, I've always wanted to sell as, I wouldn't say complex solutions, but solutions, because I love the way you sell solutions. You have to understand the business issues of your customers or prospects, and you have to bring a solution actually to fix this problem rather than pushing a box or pushing a software or features. And that is really connected to your question, because when I think about the sweet spot, I always connect actually this solution selling to the sweet spot. Most of the time, right or wrong, I don't know, but this is the way I've always overrated. I was trying to figure out which problems we were solving and building the sweet spot in front of these problems. And for instance, actually, and of course, the value, the bigger is the value, the more actually I'm going to load my sweet spot with that. So for instance, I mean, when I started Google Cloud in Europe, and at the very beginning of the story, we were selling Google Apps, Google Apps, which is now Google Workspace, which is the computer of Office 365, which is a collaboration suite. And very quickly, I realized, as an example, that an industry like retail had a lot of remote workers in the stores, and they were not connected, actually, to their corporation. They even didn't have an email. And so the more employees were remote, the more value we were bringing to these companies because we could finally actually connect all of these workers and dramatically improve efficiency, productivity, and bring some competitive advantage to this retail industry. So this is the way I've, I've built my sweet spot. I told my teams, we are going to focus on offering some solutions to change the way retail is working. And we created this sweet spot. So the way I create a sweet spot is really how can I connect business solutions to solve business problems and really focus on that because this is where the value is. And this is where, of course, the revenue is at the end of the day. I'm reminded of years past. In a past life, I led sales teams at AT&T. And a lot of that was focusing on solution selling and consultative selling and and how do you go beyond just offering some tool that helps enable business to truly, you know, actually a solution that has a deeper value. So what you were saying really resonates. Yeah, it's really tools and it's also strategic partnership. You're thought yeah, of as yeah. a trusted partner, not just a vendor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's a partnership for the next five to 10 years. I mean, this is what we're talking about. It's a trusted relationship you need to build. And, and here again, it's a topic we could spend a lot of time is how do you build this relationship with the top executives in your customer? And the beauty, for instance, with my past experience at Google was that because of the awareness of the company, you can access directly the CEOs of the largest company in the world, and you can really have the right level of discussion with these people. That's actually interesting. Maybe we can talk a little bit later about how do you build trust also internally with top executives. I mm -hmm. think we want to table that a little bit and then maybe Aaron, we can kind of revisit that a little bit later here. But there's one thing that you keyed in on again also was hiring and team building, right? Interviewing around 400 executives, I think 95% of those that we surveyed said that hiring is the most challenging thing when it comes to international expansion or growth. And the most important. And the most important, right? So I would actually try to pull out a story from you. Hopefully you're okay with this. Maybe you can talk a little bit about like a good hire that you made for you know international and the impact of that. And then also a bad hire and also the impact of that. You, you don't have to mention names. Don't mention names. <laughs> just overarching if you're comfortable with that. So first of all, I can't agree more than hiring is the most important thing and the most difficult thing. I really agree. And the easiest part of the answer is the worst hiring I've made, actually. Um, it was very interesting. It's probably one of my 
I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, but if my probably biggest mistake actually was for hiring. So when I came again to Singapore in uh, 2005, I guess, I inherited it from an amazing international team, APAC team. And my very first issue I had to uh, solve was to hire a new managing director for Japan. Never, ever went to Japan. And I came to Japan, started the interviews. And, you know, at the time, and I don't know how much it's still uh, the case, so language might sometimes be a barrier in some countries and in Japan at the time, at least in particular. And I've done the very traditional mistake, which is hiring probably the candidate who had the best English skills, but at the same time, actually, was probably not uh, the best business leader. We have heard this multiple times. It's often you think just because they can communicate in a language doesn't mean they have the rest of the package, right? Exactly. And at the same time, you're meeting some uh, candidates who don't have uh, enough language skills and can hardly express actually themselves. And you totally miss, you miss everything. You miss the fact that they are the right candidates because they are connected, because they run similar businesses, because uh, they understand what to do. So that was really my biggest mistake. I remember, again, in Impact, I've hired some fantastic leaders at Oracle to run our core business, the database business in Southeast Asia. Eventually, I ended up hiring a great also leader in Japan. So, and I've recently hired some great leaders also at Box in Europe since I joined a year ago. I mean, great leader being, again, somebody who is first and foremost aligned with the culture, which is very, very important. And then, of course, I mean, it was a great Rolodex in the marketplace, who has already uh, run and scale a business. The chance I had in my career, and especially the last 10 years at Google, I was always been running high-growth businesses, meaning sometimes with uh, 100% plus growth. And it's not easy. I mean, and I was also the first, pretty much the first one to create a business at Google Cloud in Europe that we started from pretty much from scratch, actually $50 million. And when I left the company, actually, we had exceeded more than $1.5 billion. So you really, it's very difficult first to hire somebody who's going to go along all of this journey. But, and sometimes actually you need to hire a leader for the first leg of the journey and then hire some people who have already expanded businesses uh, above the billion mark. But it's very, very complex, actually. So I don't know. It's, it's a difference. It's probably a different concession that we can have on the profiles. That makes total sense. It, it's company building in new market, right? Also, yeah. almost like startups, In when you scale in one market, at some point, you need to transition over to maybe a more experienced executive team that they can then take the company to the next level, right? Maybe just to kind of formalize things a little bit. Aaron and I, we created a team building framework and I'm flashing it to you here right now, Sebastian. So we're kind of a little bit of a cheat sheet, right? Because I don't expect you having read the book yet, but hopefully in the future. But one of the things that we talked about was that entrepreneurial mindset, right? On the top right of this framework, we talk about leadership skills for distributed organizations, right? People who have strong communication skills, or autonomous decision makers, or can remove obstacles and also build a very high trust culture. But Two other elements that's absolutely key, and we talked a little bit about it, is the bridge between company knowledge and local knowledge, right? Aligning with company core values and principles, being a culture fit, and then being able to get things done internally and then build that trust. And then more local knowledge is local business experience, the language skills, the local networks, and then one area that pride in, in local culture that we talked about with you in France and so forth. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that, how you were thinking about meshing skills together when you built teams and to build these very high-performing and scalable teams internationally? I think that local is super important. And so you need to really hire the, the, the best possible the best possible talent that understand the, the local culture. So I totally agree with you, actually, that have the local knowledge um, is super important. And also who can cope with the culture. For instance, I mean, whether it's at Google or Box in particular, culture is extremely important, actually. They, you really have some values that I've not found anywhere else, actually, before. And it's critical that day one, they are getting trained, actually, to these values and they understand why, actually, it's important. I mean, if I take my personal experience, one of the biggest challenges I had, the former HR leader of Google actually wrote a book, and I've got a one or two page that describe that, my personal case. I came from Oracle, which was and is still a fantastic company, very sales-driven company a very strong culture of selling. And I think they have a reputation for that, actually. And so uh, I wouldn't say you sell or you die. This is not what I want to say, but it's really the primary focus, actually. Everything is really about, and all the company is supporting you to sell, whether you are in Japan, in the US, in France, in England, everybody is there. And then I moved to Google, and Google was very different, actually. It's really a company that was putting their employee first, that really cared about your personal development, about growing you as a leader. And I wouldn't say that they were putting the numbers as a second priority, but they were really giving you some time. I was totally distracted by this change. It was absolutely. And it came to a point where I had my first feedback survey three months after I joined Google. It was the worst ever actually 360 that I got. It was absolutely ugly. It was terrible. Actually, it was like 22% out of 100. And I was saying myself, there is no way I'm going to succeed in this company or I need to reboot myself. And I came to my boss, I came to HR, I said, guys, I mean, as much excited and proud I am to join a company like Google, my kids were super proud of myself when I, when I was at Google. It was so cool. My father had to go and so on. But the problem is that I can't cope with the culture. I'm not formatted for that, actually. I'm formatted for brings, for closing quarters, closing deals, actually do everything I can actually to bring my numbers. And you're telling me, hold on, you've got some time, actually. Uh, and it's a new business. First, build a strategy, build the people, build your team and so on and so forth. So, so the point I want to make is absolutely critical, actually, that when you recruit a new leader and when you align, you align, you need to take culture and values extremely seriously. Another thing that I've learned, for instance, is diversity. I mean, it's not that I didn't care about diversity 15, 20 years ago, but I really discovered in the last 10 years how much that was important. And it's not only gender diversity, it's really background diversity. It's uh, it's really everything that each of the team leaders can really bring as an incremental value to the team. So that was absolutely critical. So this is something you need to take into consideration when you build an international team or a team. It's a culture, diversity, and then really understand that first and foremost, as I said, we are in a global company. It's important actually to, uh, again, as I said, understand the strategy, bring the strategy and the vision into your country, and anything that deviates from this strategy, you really need actually to have a very serious business plan actually to implement some local specificities. And then everything else is also important. Entrepreneurial, being an entrepreneur, 
agility, adaptation, you have to adapt. And everything is so much more complex. The last thing is your leader must really be able to simplify things, actually. And this is also connected to the sweet spot that I was talking about before. I mean, you have to uh, cherry pick your battles. You have to simplify things. You have to chase complexity. You have to really go with actionable business plan with the right metrics and the right goals. Um, so you actually, you keyed in on, on a few things. I think Klaus may disagree with this, but if we had to boil down a lot of what we talked to into a word or two, one of those words would be balance. And part of it is what you were talking about before as it relates to culture and finding that right balance with company culture and fitting in with local culture, even fitting in with maybe personal culture of how you think. And you were explaining that a little bit with your journey with going from Oracle to Google. But the balance also hits the other thing you were talking about, which has to do with complexity. When people think about international expansion and entering new markets, there's a lot of focus on what needs to be localized. We were talking about that earlier. But that complexity side is often an afterthought, and that can create a lot of problems. And you know, even when you look at just your current role right now as president of EMEA, EMEA is, is a diverse, you know, it's three regions, really. How do you handle the localization that's needed with managing the complexity that comes along with that? A few things. So balance, I agree, is everything. The leaders that I felt in my environments are the leaders who are keeping pretending that everything was different in their markets. And they were more focusing on the differences rather than focusing on how do I adapt, actually, my global strategy to my markets. So this is super important. The leaders who have failed and the leaders who have succeeded, those who have succeeded, as you rightly said, found the right balance, actually, between operating with their differences in the market, but also leveraging the corporate resources. The global company has a lot of resources. How many times in my 30 years experience, I've told myself, I am begging for resources, but we have so many resources in the U.S. who are so-called global resources. I mean, this is what are these guys, what are these people doing, actually? And I realized that, no, 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 especially it's the other way around, actually. These people can bring you some value. They are here. They are supposedly global people. And the best you can do so they understand your local specificities is to bring them in your game rather than to stick that, to let them in the U.S. Because guess what they're going to do? They are going to keep on working in the U.S. instead of working in your region. So pull the corporate resources as much as you can. You don't have to care about your ego. These people are here to help you. So this is very important. And to understand your local specificities. And then... Seeing is believing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the more you get them with customers, partners, and in your markets, the more they see it and the more they believe it and the more they are going to help you. But again, it's back to the business. EMEA is very complex. You can't solve all the problems and you have to cherry pick and prioritize your problems. So for instance, I mean, if... The regulation is such in a country that no matter how you're going to do, it's going to cost you a fortune actually to customize and adapt your product for a return, which eventually is very low and which will divert you from other priorities, which are more profitable. Don't go there, period. You have to make some hard decisions. Again, the leaders who have succeeded have made these right decisions. That There is some arbitrage to do. How many times I've seen in my past experience, people just fighting for the sake of closing one deal 
but at the end of the day, something which is not replicable in the future, and these are scalable. And that's exactly what we have to avoid. It's really to focus on what is close to corporate strategy, how you can leverage these corporate resources, and how you can have a 10x return rather than just for the sake of closing an opportunity. So it's about pulling company resources and bring them into your context. I keep mentioning this all the time on many podcasts, and I think it's just an important message to kind of deliver to people who lead international strategy. Masami Takahashi-san, again, led expansion for WeWork and Uber. And he said, one of the most important things is to make leaders and your executives and maybe your CEO fall in love with the country that you're in. Because that way you expose them to that environment. You not only get the sort of the, obviously the opportunity from growth, but also the emotional buy-in as well. And that's really, really important. And so again, trying to pull stories out of you and say, can you talk a little bit more about how you went about that? Did you do anything, any specific things? How did you get them to socialize with that environment? Did you bring them into a nice dinner? You know, some of the more humane things around expansion, I'd love to kind of pull that out of you. Yeah, so I totally agree. I think the best way for a CEO or a top executive to fall in love with a country or a territory is to deliver. First is to show the potential, number one, because before delivering, you have to show the potential. And two is to deliver. How many executives I've seen in my past experience, again, they just love traveling to APAC, but they were coming for tourism rather than really for a business purpose. But at the end of the day, we could clearly understand that that, well, they wanted to go to some very nice Southeast Asian countries, but they were not here actually for the good reasons. So the best way beyond a nice dinner, because we can have, we get so many places, is show the potential, build the credibility, which is super important, actually. Build a trusted relationship. I mean, most of the time, whether you're in Asia, even you're in Europe, it's only a portion of the global revenue. Most of these the companies are making more, the biggest chunk of part of the business in the US. So So you have to be relevant. You have to build this credibility. And when you start building this credibility, I mean, you're listened and then you you need to come super prepared with the right business plan, with the right potential and the right plan for the next five years, actually, to achieve above the expectation and to get some investments. And then, of course, you really need, I mean, my CEOs, I've always tried to pull them as much as I can. I was very happy. Aaron Levy, for instance, our CEO at Box, came to London to run our first physical post-pandemic big event with our customers. We had 300 customers. I was super happy, actually. This is really because it is just helping you so much. Every single executive who's coming to your region is a formidable opportunity, actually, to accelerate your business. And the more they can see this value, the more they are coming, of course. I mean, I was so proud because not only we had a few hundred people in the room, but of course, it has had an impact. And when I came back to Aaron, actually telling him, oh, you know what, actually, what we've done in London in June has created a pipeline of X million dollars. I mean, this is the best return on investment and the best return. This is what Aaron wanted to hear, actually. And so it has always been like that. So bring them, but you have to create some value. And that reminds us, one of the inflection points we see as well is if international is 5 or 10% of revenue, it's really not as big of a focus. But you know, when it hits that 30 to 40% plus, then all of a sudden, everyone's starting to see the potential there. Okay. Yeah, I had the case at Oracle, for instance, where China, I mean, I can't disclose numbers and it was a long time ago, so I probably forgot them, but it, it was probably uh, close to 30% actually uh, contribution, global contribution. It was a massive territory. And so, of course, I mean, they are coming uh, more easily. Yeah. 
One thing in particular that in hearing about your background that I was most curious about, because I think you are uniquely qualified to answer this question, is really about keys to success for managing that HQ relationship. Because you've done that across companies, across products, across regions. What are some of those keys to managing that relationship? You talk about showing the potential, all of those different things, but some of it has to do with communication and otherwise. What are the full keys to success there? Yeah, visibility is one. You need to be visible. You need to really be in their office all the time. So at the time before pandemic, actually, we could travel. I had a rule, which is I need to go there once a quarter at the very minimum. And every opportunity, I'm catching the opportunity to go to corporate, meet people, and build some trusted relationship with these people. So visibility is really number one. And it's not only visibility with your direct managers, it's really visibility across the board, actually. So for instance, when I was only a VP of sales, I was spending a lot of time actually with all the support functions, whether it's marketing or even the product folks. So it's very important actually to be visible. The second thing is really engaging this executive and these resources, as I said previously, in your business. So the more they are coming to your territory, again, the more visibility you have. But, but it's not only about having them in your office, it's really having them in front of your customers. And that's the magic, actually. Customers is everything in our industry. This is what they are looking for you. It's get close to your customer. It's growing your customer. It's getting more customers. So the more they are engaging in discussion, the better. If you think about, for instance, engineering, engineering, the best way to influence the roadmap, which is super important, especially when you require for some specificities in your international patch, it's to bring the engineers, the R&D executive in front of your customers, because the best way is having your customers tell them about their requests rather than you telling them what we need. And then it's really about delivering. I mean, at the same time, I'm glad to go once a quarter. Every time I'm going there for every three months, I have to present my activity, my numbers. And of course, the more predictable you are, the more consistent you are, the more credibility you build and the more attention you get. So I think this is in a nutshell what I would say. Yeah, so it reminds me of the entrepreneurship class that I teach at Haas School of Business at Berkeley. I say to my students, key to entrepreneurial success or key to business success in one word is customers. That's really what it is. Without customers, you have no business, <laughs> et cetera. Wanted to look a little bit toward the future. And so one thing that we noticed in the process of writing this book is how the way that global is approached and the way that global is viewed is changing. And one of the connections we make is about how, and part of our methodology is adding a global layer on top of the agile methodology, right? So still staying iterative of different things. And you made reference to like your business plan. And one thing we like to say is global is the new agile, meaning everyone kind of has got this agile methodology, but global is that next area of potential. But one of the connections we also make is that in the same way that Agile has taken companies away from these huge formal launches, but have made these more iterative customer-centric approaches, we think that's also where global is as well. So when you're going into a new region, it's not necessarily, let's go hire 20 people and open an office or two, but it's how do we dip our toe into that country, learn a little bit more about it, and iterate and figure out how we need to localize, et cetera. How do you see global changing? You have a lot of experience from a number of companies over time. How has it changed? But in particular, where is it going? I think it's a bit of a revolution right now, what we're seeing. And with the new way of working, of course, and digitization, which is totally changing. 
some part of the, well, the way we are running some business. One of the biggest surprises, actually, when I came at Box a year ago, at Box, we have three main operations in Europe. So uh, in London, in Paris, and in Munich, these are the top three markets. But I was so impressed, actually, by the number of customers we are having in uh, so many countries, whether in Spain, in Italy, in the Nordics, in, uh, where we have operations also in the Netherlands, or in the Middle East. And still going, actually. And I was wondering, how do we open these new customers and develop these customers? And a lot of it, most of it is through digitization. I mean, how many times now we can have a remote account executive, a remote customer success, a remote consultant, actually, that are delivering the same value, if not even better value, actually, to these customers. Even myself, actually, I'm sitting in Paris because I've relocated to Paris. Some days, I have the opportunity to talk to three different customers in three different countries, where 10 years ago, I was taking a plane just for a lunch in Milan. So it's the way we engage with customers, the way we collaborate internally and externally is totally different, actually. And I think it's going to really totally change the way we operate in global and international environments, even the way I interact with corporate, I mean, it has just totally changed. It's changing a lot of things. It's changing uh, customer engagement. It's changing time to market when you launch new products. It's changing the way you innovate. It's changing, I mean, just the way you enable, you onboard people, you enable people. It creates a lot of competitive advantage, actually, should you do it the right way. So all the adoption of these new technologies, but also these new business practices has totally changed. So it would take much more time actually to reflect on this very complex question, but it's amazing how things are changing, honestly, and how things are even easier when it comes to running international business. That's really interesting. We knew that Box was a global class company by our definition, but one of the big things that global class companies think about differently is talent and is being able to operate in a distributed work environment, right? And that thing's not having to be done in person. And so you were just talking about finding talent where they happen to be and using them to understand new markets. But you also have an interesting story of a recent acquisition, right? With sign requests. You kind of handled that acquisition maybe a little different than than pre-pandemic, yes? No, it's a good one, Aaron. You're right. So acquiring talent and having uh, talent remotely located. So this is, of course, a formidable opportunity. But also when it comes to accelerating our roadmap, we, you mentioned sign requests, which is a very good example. So uh, we have identified this company and eventually, to cut a very long story short, we ended up uh, acquiring this company sign request totally remotely. We have not met anyone actually physically from sign request. It was really during the pandemic uh, and the technology was uh, so great that it was a no-brainer that this would accelerate our, our roadmap. And now, thanks to that, within very few months, we have now a new module in our roadmap in our products suite, which is called Box Sign, which allow our customers actually to access to some e-signature capabilities. So absolutely, that's a great example. And we will see more and more of this for sure. What I'm really enjoying about this conversation is hearing the positivity in your voice and the genuine curiosity in general when you approach international business. And, and you say this is an exciting time. It's kind of interesting and funny that as we're publishing the book Global Class, the books we're competing against right now on you know, Amazon and everything, they talk about the world is divided. But entrepreneurs is looking at things very differently, right? We're approaching things in a much more positive way when it comes to international business expansion and growth. 
And so I just wanted to call that out on today's call because we can really sense that and feel that from you, Sebastian. So we appreciate that. I'm more interested in asking you a question related to your family and the future, right? Because you led an international career for many, many years, and you clearly have this amazing passion. And I would love to know and understand a little bit about how that career sort of also has impacted your kids in terms of the way that they view the world as well. What are some of the values that you instill to them to also foster that entrepreneurial mindset and that global mindfulness with your family and kids as well? You don't do an international career if you're not supported by your family. It is such a big decision. It was such a big decision myself, actually, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, when I decided to leave to Singapore in Asia, where I've never been except for a week of holidays. And I, I would always remember if I have a few minutes here, actually, it has a story. The day I got this APAC job, which my wife didn't think a minute I will get it. <laughs> I came back home and I said to my wife, hey, Armel is my wife's first name. I got the job. We're going to move to Singapore. And then I remember my five years old actually was around. And my wife told my five years old, Vincent is his name. Vincent, do you know what is the last one of your father? No, mom, I don't know. We're going to go super far. You're going to lose all your friends. And we're going to go in a country where you will not even speak the language. And so Way to sell it, crying. mom. <laughs> <laughs> so I told myself, mm, got to be a challenge here. I'm not sure everybody's on board. But anyway, let's try. And then I moved on. <laughs> and we left 18 years, actually. And my son, my, my youngest one was five years. My oldest one was 12. And eventually, now they are from 22 to 31. And if you're asking each and every, all of them actually say, thank you, thank you, thank you, actually. It's absolutely amazing, actually, what we went through. And the list is very long, actually, from growing in a multicultural environment to uh, traveling across uh, 17 different countries, to studying in international schools. And actually, my older son, 31, you all just got married in July in San Francisco with his Impressive. wife, with a Chinese native wife, actually. And this is absolutely beautiful. My younger one works for Revolut in England. And my daughter just came back to France after having spent three years at Google. Wow. And again, it's just formidable. I mean, it's just the diversity in the family. And we were, and we are still so French to a certain extent. The day again, I remember all the time. I remember this first day I mentioned. I mean, never, ever I was thinking about going anywhere else from Paris. So no, it was just great. You unfrenchified the family or whatever the word could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah everybody's asking me, what does it mean to be very French beyond the accent? <laughs> well, Aaron and I, we, we very much believe in diversity, obviously. And we also try to encourage that global mindset in our kids and family as well. Aaron's wife is Asian, my wife is Asian as well. And so we sort of live it on a day-to-day basis, but also... We're very intentional in the way that we also educate our kids. Just a simple thing this week that's happening or over the next month, we, I have our colleague, Victor from Brazil, staying in our house instead of sending him at the hotel. And one of the reasons for that is because I want my kids to be exposed to him and sort of the value he brings into our culture and so forth as well. So they learn about other countries and get that curiosity that we find to be very, very key to be successful when it comes to international markets. I don't know, Aaron, if you want to share a little bit about how you also encourage your kids having that global mindset as well. Absolutely. I think it's exposure to things is really, really important. You understand things when you have experience in it, right? And as an American, Americans are often so American-centric and 
when I go to other countries, I intentionally want to stay away from Americans because I'm like, let's see what it's really like. And so just giving kids exposure to things that are not what they're used to day to day, culturally, life experience perspectives and differences. You know, Klaus, you, you tell a story about when you were living in Chile and, you know, internationally, Pinochet was thought of as a terrible dictator, but with the family you were staying with was well loved. And so just going through those type of things is interesting and, and finding ways to celebrate how people think and live differently is important. Yeah, absolutely. But you need, but it's still very important to have a core set of values still, actually, because it can be also extremely disrupting. I mean, moving from Singapore to San Francisco to London and traveling all around the place. Yeah, it can be a quite disturbing. So you need really making sure that everybody stays together and with the core values that you believe as parents. I completely agree. And Aaron completely agrees. And we could actually create a whole new podcast episode on that as well. But we're coming yeah. to the end now. <laughs> We're going into what we call the three pieces of advice, Sebastian. So imagine you're coming down from the elevator. You have to answer these three questions very quickly. And so are you ready for the journey down the elevator? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's try. Awesome. So what one piece of advice would you have or give to someone interested in building a career around international business? Easy. It's a huge opportunity. It's a career booster. We didn't talk too much about that. It's a career booster. I can say 10 times, actually. It's absolutely right. amazing. And it's a family project. So, That's interesting uh, yeah. because in Japan, it's not seen as a career booster because Japan okay. is very Japan-centric, right? It's a risk almost, right? So it's kind of interesting from a cultural perspective that it's different there, right? Anyways, what one piece of advice do you have for a business leader expanding a business to new markets? Yeah, a lot of due diligence, market analysis, and you know it, you need to talk to customers, customers and customers to learn about the markets and partners. The three big C's, customers, customers, customers. Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> what one piece of advice would you have for your younger self? I should have left sooner than what I've done, actually. So if I had to do, redo it, I would probably leave five years before I left. That resonates a lot with me. I first started to exploring international markets at the age of 25 when I traveled to Chile and stayed there for three weeks and immersed myself. And I agree completely. Yeah, Sebastian, there were so many great things that you touched on. Everything from diversity being a strength to finding the balance we talked about when it comes to culture, as well as localizing the business, bringing company resources into your context. So showing the potential, then delivering it right? The importance of bringing executives into the market to build credibility, to build trusted relationships, and to be relevant. As Klaus said, and you said, customers are everything. And the fact that we're in this revolutionary time where time to market, the way you innovate people, everything is changing and really gives a lot of opportunity for global business. So thank you for, for your insights. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. 